Will you all pray with me? God, you are present everywhere. You are present everywhere in those places that we look and we ask, how could you be there? It seems so empty, so void, so starving for hope. You are present there. You are at work. We consider our lives and we do not sense you We do not see you. Our eyes aren't able to recognize you. We still know you are present. You are present. Father, I lift up this community. And today, Lord, as you speak to your people, my prayer is that eyes would be opened to how good you are. And it's in your crucified and resurrected name we pray. Amen. How's everyone doing today? Good. Uh, My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so happy you're joining us. Uh, You actually, if it's your first time, you came in a really exciting time in Hope Brooklyn's life. We're in our preview season. Essentially what that means is we've never been to church before. So we're figuring out how to do that. The staff, we're leading for the first time. We're figuring out what that looks like. But more importantly, we're creating a culture of ownership. We're, We're... Casting a vision of this is what we believe God is calling this church to be. And it's us, all of us, buying into it to live into that vision. I found this quote that I really enjoyed that I think epitomizes the preview season. It says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them task and work. Rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And I like that because I think that's what this vision season is about. The vision of the gospel that is presented by Jesus is something so alternative and so radical and so rich, it tastes so good that this is a time where we are remembering what it tastes like. And I know there's some people here who have maybe never been a part of a church and if that's you, thanks for being here. Know that you are super welcome every single Sunday at tables, we need your voice. And there's some people here who maybe have been distant from the church for a while. Maybe have forgotten how good the gospel tastes. This is this season where we're longing for the, learning to long for the immensity of the sea again. Learning to taste and see that this God is far better than we ever dreamt possible. And so what we're doing in gearing up for our big launch in Easter is we're going through our vision statement. And it's five sentences long. And we're taking one sentence every week and sort of delving into it. We're saying, where does this come from scripturally? How does the gospel feed into our ideas and our vision? And, and the reason behind that is to create a culture of homothumadon. And that's a word we, we used last week. It's a Greek word. It comes from, it's a compound. It comes from homo, which means same, and thumos, which means desire, intention. So put it together, it means with one mind, with one intention, with one desire. And it's interesting because that word is used 11 times in scripture. And 10 of those times come from the book of Acts. And for those unfamiliar, Acts tells the story of the first church. Acts tells the story of the first church plant. And I think that's important for us because it seems 
that in order for a new organization to get off the ground, and specifically for a church plant to get off the ground, we need to be on the same page. We need to have hamathumadon. We need to have one mind, one intention, one voice. And so that's what this series is about. So for those who don't know, this is our vision statement. This is a description of who Hope Brooklyn is that we think God has called us to be in the community of Brooklyn and wider in NYC. Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. At the table, we come face to face with Jesus and one another. Through a shared meal, authentic community and the narrative of Jesus, we are transformed. We live lives of imperfect love and reckless generosity, engaging our neighborhoods in Brooklyn and beyond according to the gospel of grace. Because God invited us freely to his table, all are invited to ours. So, recap. Last week we looked at sentence one. Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. And we said many vision statements start with action verbs to do something, to make something, to be something. We start with an indicative verb. Hope Brooklyn is. Before we strive to do anything, we need to know who we are. And we said that because that's primarily what the gospel is all about. The gospel is not telling you, God is not telling you what he expects of you. He's telling you who you are in his eyes. And so this is, this is God's doing. This is no individual's doing trying to establish this community. God is telling us who Hope Brooklyn is, who he desires this community to be. We are a diverse community. And we got a little theological last week and talked about the Trinity. The idea that uh, in the Christian faith, we serve one God. But this one God just so happens to be comprised of three beautiful persons. And, and, and not in such a way that you could, you know, divide them up. So when you're looking at Jesus, you're only seeing one third of God. Not that at all. But the word that the early uh, scholars, Christian scholars developed was perichoresis, which means to dance around. So God in his very nature, one substance is three beautiful persons dancing around one another. Constantly, the father is beholding the face of the son and the spirit glorifying them, adoring them, delighting them. And the son is beholding the face of the spirit and the father, glorifying and adoring and delighting. So who God is in his very nature is one divine dance. And so what we see in creation is God opens up space in himself for other creatures to join into the dance. And that would be consistent, right? We could call that God love. If it was one God of one substance, of one person, what do they know about love? But if God, from his very beginning, is one God in three persons, a dance of love, then that would make sense. And, and the primary um, representation of that Trinitarian logic is a family, a diverse community, a family where all the siblings and the members are different, but they're bound together in love, just like the triune God. And so if Hope Brooklyn is, who are we? We're a diverse community. What is our primary function? We eat together. That is the primary function of the people of God, one who shares a meal. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Yes. I don't even make that up. I mean, that sounds like a great marketing pitch. It's, it's not even from me. 
This is who God is. At the very beginning, he created the garden and he gave it. And then throughout all the prophets and into Jesus and and to the first church, the final vision of what it's gonna be like when all evil is done away with is a giant feast. Like even if I didn't believe in that God, I still wanna be a part of that. And so today what we're gonna do is we're gonna expound on the why. Why do we eat together? Why do we come to the table? We said at the table, we come face to face with Jesus and one another. We come to the table because the table unmasks us. And not only does the table unmask us, but the table unmasks Jesus. The table reveals who this guy Jesus of Nazareth is. The table opens our eyes. Brief recap of the story that Steph read for us. So it opens on the third day. The third day meaning Jesus had been crucified three days prior. He had led some people. There were people following him in Jerusalem. And they were sorely disappointed. They lost all hope when he was crucified because death stops everything. Death stops every movement, right? However, there had been rumors on that day from some of the women among the the Jesus followers who had gone to his tomb to anoint his body with spices and they said he wasn't there. And they came back terrified. And there's a guy named Simon, who we learn later in this story, who claimed to have seen Jesus, who was crucified, up and walking around. And so, at least among this, this group of Jews who were following Jesus as the Messiah, they're like, they're confused right now. And so two of them are leaving Jerusalem, where all this has gone down, and they're walking to Emmaus, a seven-mile journey. We don't know why, but they're walking to Emmaus. And as they walk, we're told that they're, they're talking to one another. They're reflecting on what's gone down in Jerusalem. They're asking questions. And as they do, Jesus walks up beside them, but they don't recognize him. Jesus walks up beside them and he starts joining them on their journey and they don't recognize him. And he asks them, what are you guys talking about? Just so you know, I just... The more you get to know Jesus, the more you get to know this God, the more you realize that he has the greatest sense of humor the world can imagine. I'm not joking. It's not a sense of humor from meanness. It's not one of those sarcastic, biting senses of humor. The very essence of the divine dance is joy. Who God is in his nature is a God of laughter. And so you can just, when you read through that lens, the more you get to know Jesus, You read his stories and you see how he just loves his disciples. He loves his people. They don't get it. They don't understand who he is. But he's constantly messing with them as like a father would wrestle with his child on the floor. And so he walks up beside them. They can't recognize him. And he goes, what what are you guys talking about? Right? You can see the humor. Like, what's what's going on? What's new in the world? Well, there's actually a new world is what's happened. And they ask him a question and they go, are you the only stranger to Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened? Now that's an ironic question because in fact, he is the only person in Jerusalem who knows exactly what's happened. (laughs) But he plays along, he plays along. He's like, no, tell me what's happened. And so they tell him. 
And they said, We've, we were following this guy. We thought he was going to be the Messiah. We thought he was going to be the Savior of Israel. But they just crucified him. He died. But it's even crazier because some of our women went to his tomb and, you know, he wasn't there. And this one guy, Simon, claims to have seen him resurrected. And so we're just not sure what to make of all this. And then Jesus goes, it's translated foolish, but really it means obtuse. He goes, how obtuse. You guys are so obtuse and hard of heart. How slow to believe. Everything that your eyes are telling you is true. Everything your heart is saying is true. And then starting from their scriptures, he explains how everything in their worldview points to him. How everything about what they hold so dear, he was already inside of. How it was true that the Messiah needed to suffer and to die and to be raised. And so they get to Emmaus and Jesus intends to just walk on by. But they, they importune him. They say, stay. No, 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 it's late. Stay with us. And so he's like, all right, because Jesus can't dur- turn down an invitation to dinner. He's just not able to. So they invite him to dinner. He's like, all right, what do we have? Fine. So he comes in. And it's a really interesting thing. They invited him to their table. And very quickly, it became his table. He's the one holding the bread, blessing it and breaking it. And when he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened and they recognize him. And then we're told Jesus disappears. The Greek word means he became invisible. I like to think he gave him a quick wink right before it. <laughs> he breaks the bread. They're like, oh shoot. I'll see you in a bit. Gone. And they freak out. And at that very hour, late, very late, they run the seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem, burst into the disciples and those gathering and say, it's true. I don't know how it is, but it's true. He's alive. Simon was telling the truth. We saw him. And we recognized him when he broke the bread. Why is the table central to who Hope Brooklyn is? The table is central because it reveals Jesus' identity. And it reveals our identity. The table strips away all illusions, leaving us naked before the naked God in whom there is no shame. And so as I look at this story, the first thing I notice is that all roads lead to Jesus' table. That's a bold claim, but I think it's true. All roads lead to Jesus' table. It starts, Luke starts his account by saying that they're on a seven-mile journey. Seven in Judaism is the number of completion. It is a total journey. It is a complete journey. They're on a seven-mile journey, and what are they doing? The Greek words he uses is homileo and suzeteo. Homileo is where we get the word homily. So a homily is like a sermon. It's a reflection on a passage. So they're reflecting on these things that have happened and they're suzeteo. That means to seek together. They're reflecting on things that have happened and they're seeking together meaning in it. They're seeking truth in it. 
And as I read that first sentence, it's almost like this symbolic account of life. All life are human beings walking together on a seven mile journey, reflecting on what's going on and trying to find meaning in it all. Two friends reflecting on what's happened in life and seeking meaning in it. And if you look at all the brilliant thinkers in the world history, they all sort of say the same thing. I mean, Plato and his Republic, he goes, an unexamined life is not worth living. And then he's quoting Socrates. So from the beginning of like written uh, uh, accounts of human thought, we're sort of saying the same idea. We live and we, we're trying to understand why do we live? What is going on? We're on this road that is leading to Jesus' table. And as we start examining this life, as we examine this world, we realize many things don't square up. There are many things about ourselves and about this world that it's just not right. It, it doesn't make sense. Most of all, death, right? Anyone who honestly starts examining the purpose of life, the meaning of life, is immediately faced with the cruel reality that one day every single person in this room will, will not be, not as you currently are. And all the things that make life worth living will be stopped, and that seems unfair. And lots of cultures in human history, they've, they've come to terms with it, but they've never accepted it. Humans have never been able to fully accept this, this idea that we're gonna die it seems like this imposition. I love this quote, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was an atheist and a philosopher, a very wise man. And if you look at many of the philosophers um, who are atheists or agnostic, they sort of say the same thing. He goes, it was true. I had always realized it. I hadn't any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance. I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking, here we are, eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence and that there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. When you start considering death, you realize that it doesn't square up with us. We live as if we're not going to die, but yet we are. Why is that? Unless we were created by a God who is life, who desires us to live forever as he lives forever, but we've not. So it's just this dissonance. And then we start inducing backwards and we realize we're on this road and we're reflecting and we're seeking truth. And as we start inducing backwards, we find clues for a creator everywhere. One, that we are rather than are not is something. Look at this, this is from Francis Collins, who's a scientist, a geneticist. He goes, when you look from the perspective of a scientist, at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and the weak nuclear forces that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce there would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. It's like a slot machine. And they all have millions of 
possibilities and you pull it and it all comes to the exact right combination for the universe to be how it is, to support life. As if matter knew we were coming. Friends, that's a clue. That seems to suggest that this isn't by chance. And if it is by chance, if there is no God, no creator, and we are simply here by random accident, man, that takes a lot of faith. (laughs) Because this slot machine of millions of possibilities and all to get exactly right is something. But we keep considering other clues, other roads that we're on that are leading to Jesus' table. One is human rights. That humanity has this concept called human rights or this transcendent moral order that we think we should all uh, subscribe to. That says something, because if there is no God, if we are here by chance, we can't use words like right or wrong. We can only say I prefer this or don't prefer this. There was a woman's march the other day, and I know some of our community marched in it to protest the idea that men can oppress women, among other things. Now, as a Christian and a human, I completely agree with that. No human should be able to oppress any other human. But I agree with that because I believe we come from a creator who says every single human is made in his image worthy of absolute respect and dignity. But if that's not true, if we have only evolved entirely outside of a creator by chance, then what we all enjoy saying, what's very popular, what's very popular today? Uh, Moral relativism, right? Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. But what if your truth is racial genocide? None of us look at racial genocide or slavery or oppression and say, well, I don't prefer that. (laughs) No, we say that's evil. That's wrong. It needs to be stopped. But what right have we to say that? What basis can we claim other than a creator who created all and said, this is why? And and all of us, especially outside the church, we enjoy um, trying to speak as a moral relativist, but none of us do that. Like it's really popular to say your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. But if your truth imposes on my truth, we got problems. None of us are consistent in that thinking. C.S. Lewis, who was um, um, an English dude who was a... uh, (laughs) Oh, C.S., forgive me, Jack. He was an English dude. He taught at Oxford. He taught medieval literature in the 60s. He was an atheist who became a Christian. And he says it this way. He goes, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If there is no God, if it's true that we simply evolve by chance, we can never use words like just or unjust. It's no such thing. We can't use words like good or bad, right or wrong, are no such things. We can only use words, subjective words, like I prefer or I do not prefer. But yet none of us believe that's true. There's a, um, a Yale Law professor, Arthur Leff, 
and he's also an atheist, and he's trying to create a basis of law, a basis of morality outside of God, and he can't do it. And he entitles it, The Grand Says Who, because he's trying to delve down to the absolute rock bottom and say, how can we establish moral, a, moral transcend, a transcendent moral order? And he's not able to do it. And so at the end of his essay, he goes, as things are now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as evil. Altogether now, says who? Without a God, we cannot justify human rights. And, and, and some people, a very popular opinion is sort of this evolutionary idea that um, evolutionary as a, as, a, as a theory, not a principle, which there is a difference. But this evolutionary idea that what our brains tell us, they tell us because it helps us survive. So they would say, my belief in God is really a process of evolution because it helped me survive. But then that means my brain isn't telling me what's true, my brain's telling me what helps me survive. Which means if that's, if that's true, then your brain isn't telling you what's true, your brain's telling you what helps you survive. Even if your brain's telling you that what my brain's telling me is wrong. You see how it sort of cuts the limb out from what they're sitting? There's no way we can trace it all the way back unless there is a creator. When we start examining our life, when we start examining the world, when we start examining death, reflecting and seeking truth in it all, purpose and meaning, you're on a road. And the God of the universe is walking right beside you, but you don't recognize it yet. And Jesus is walking with them and their eyes don't see him. See, it starts with human rights. It starts with the imposition of death. It starts with beauty. This concept of beauty that has no utility whatsoever, no survival value. This, it starts with the concept of a family, the preservation of the world. All of these are ways that Jesus would say are good things because they come from a creator. And he's already walking beside us. And religion is another road it's another road that's leading to Jesus' table. And I know some people here would be like, why, why does it have to be Jesus' table? Why can't it just be God's table? Why so narrow, so exclusive? Why the Christian story? Why a gospel? And I'd say a couple things. First, this is what I'd say. Notice, in this story, Jesus preaches a sermon to them and still their eyes aren't opened. If Jesus' sermon doesn't convince someone of something, I have very modest hopes for my own. <laughs> That's first. But what does Jesus do? He shows them how what's happened to him is already inside their worldview. It just completes their worldview. He shows them. It's like, it's like the story of the God who comes in flesh as a sacrifice for the world. It's the missing puzzle piece. It's the cipher that allows us to decode our entire message. And it's already inside everyone's worldview. It just completes it. It takes it to the final step. And when you look at the gospel, you realize it's so alike and so different from every other major faith. It feels on the front end super narrow and exclusive. Why that name? Why Jesus? 
but it's kind of like Willy Wonka. Y'all remember the old Willy Wonka? Where they go in that hallway and it gets narrower and narrower and narrower to this tiny door. And they're like, what is this? And what happens when they go through? It's cavernous. It's huge. That's kind of what the gospel's like. On the front end, you're like, oh, I don't want to say that name. I don't want to say Jesus is Lord. I don't want to. Why does it have to be that name? And then you approach more and more. And then once you finally go through the door, you recognize, oh, shoot. This guy is far more merciful than I imagined. That he's actually far more at work in the world than I ever thought possible. On the front end, it feels narrow. You get through and you recognize, <laughs> he's more merciful than I, than I dreamt. And, and C.S. Lewis again, when he's talking about after he became a Christian, he goes, if you are a, he goes, if you are a Christian, you don't have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. And you find that's true and would expect it to be true. If my, my story, the gospel story that, I, I, that guides my life is of a God who creates all the world and is pursuing all the world, I would expect to see his fingerprints all over the world. And we do. So you look at a lot of the major faiths and religions and you say, ooh, there are things about it that are just like Christianity. There are things about it that are true. They're just incomplete. And he becomes the final puzzle piece, the God who pursues and completes the worldview. So the gospel is so alike, but the gospel is also, make no mistake, incredibly unique and distinct. We already talked about it earlier. The gospel account, the Judeo-Christian account of creation is the only one of any of the major faiths that tells of a God creating the world from love. All the others describe a primal content or a primeval uh, battle, this chaos, this friction. The gospel is the only one that says God created the world from love, from joy, as an artist would as a parent would, to welcome others into the dance. And that makes sense. That squares with our love of beauty, with our love of family, with what we said last week, the, um, the chaplain, the hospital chaplain. Most people, 95, 96% of people at death, all they want to talk about are their families, about love or lack of love. It's at the core of everything that makes us human. That would square when you look at the various religions, pretty much all religion is, a seek, is seeking truth, right? It's walking that road. And we're all seeking divinity, wholeness, spiritual well-being. We're seeking completion, satisfaction. But they all pretty much have a similar idea. In order for the human to get from A to B, the human has to take steps in that direction. The gospel is the only one that says, the human needs to get from A to B, but you don't need to take steps. God comes to you. It's the only story that says you're unable to find salvation. You're unable to find wholeness. It's okay. I'm going to come to you. And it squares with our feelings of ineptitude, our feelings of constant brokenness and always failing, never able to get it right. The world never able to get it right. 
Every other founder of major religions came as a teacher. Only Jesus came as a savior. And that's, that, that brings something else up. Uh, I know a lot of people, um, when I have conversations with friends who aren't Christians, they usually say something along the lines of, I like Jesus as a teacher, but not as anything else. But if you read the stuff Jesus said, <laughs> dude was crazy. <laughs> like, he said, I'm the son of God. <laughs> Imagine someone comes to you on the streets like, hey, I'm going to teach you some stuff. You're like, whoa, that's really powerful. Also, I'm God. <laughs> cool, man. That's, that's cool. Right? That's what he said. He also, like, imagine um, Marisol steals Jose's shoes, okay? Marisol steals Jose's shoes. And I come up and like, no, 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 it's, it's cool, Marisol. I forgive Jose. She's like, oh, I'm, I'm glad you forgive him. I want my shoes back. He did that. He forgave wrongs that weren't committed to him. So when you read stuff Jesus says, you realize that this guy is cr either crazy or he is who he says he is. We just can't come to him and say, oh, you're only a teacher. He didn't allow that for us. He either is the Savior, he is the Son of God, or he's not. Those are our two options. And then when you keep sort of surveying and, and seeking truth and walking this road, you realize something else that's absolutely unique to the gospel story. And that's the resurrection of Jesus. And when you look at the claims of his resurrection, the burden of proof is actually not on Christians to say it's true. It's on those who disbelieve it to say how. Because when you study the, the first century, you recognize that this wasn't just something easily stumbled upon. Generally, when I talk with people who, who can't believe the resurrection, they have three charges. They say, the first century was more superstitious and magical. We understand more of the mechanics of history or the mechanics of science now. And so superstitions died out. They'll say that Jesus' followers invented this story, heartbroken after his death, or they'll say that his followers hallucinated the presence who guides them that they attributed to Jesus being raised. But when you look at the, the historical evidence, that's a really tough leap to make. And I, I'm gonna sort of offer a brief rebuttal, line by line. First, to the charge that the first century was more superstitious and more magical. Okay, maybe they didn't know exactly what DNA was, but they did know that people don't rise from the dead. That had never happened. That wasn't in anyone's worldview for the first century. The popular culture, the Greco-Roman culture, they were Stoics. Stoics were Platonists. The Platonists essentially said that the body is bad, the material world is bad, the spirit is good. And so they viewed death as liberation. When you died, your spirit was finally free to shed this corrupting body and go to the spiritual world to, to um, re-enter the ideal. Belief in a resurrection of a body was vulgar to the popular Greco-Roman empire. No one would have thought that true. No one would have desired that. And then you look at the Jews. There is not a shred of evidence in any of the Jewish literature that God would raise one person 
before the final resurrection. Yes, it's true. There was inter-Jewish debate and some uh, pockets of Judaism said there would be a resurrection of the dead, but that was reserved for the last day. When God sort of, um, when the author, or not the author, when the, when the playwright, the producer steps onto the stage, as C.S. Lewis says, everyone knows the play is over, right? So in Judaism, there was a belief that God would step back into the world. And when he did so, he would raise all in the body and he would separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And at that point, all evil would be done away with, all hatred, all wrong would be taken care of. So for these, and just so you know, all the first Jesus followers were Jews, good, faithful, devout Jews. For them to say, actually, God has raised this guy Jesus up before the last day, they would have been like, that's impossible. That's, that's ridiculous. That is so against God's nature. They would have felt that too. See, the, the movement continued to boom, continued to spread, even though there was really not good soil that this was being planted in. All the dominant views of resurrection were not in favor of someone being raised from the dead. Secondly, when you look at this idea that Jesus' followers invented this story, their accounts of his resurrection are super problematic, like super problematic. The first accounts that we get of a claim that Jesus was raised from the dead is in Paul's letters, which were written, most scholars hold, 15 to 20 years after Jesus' life. And he names the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus raised. He names them as if to say, go check it out for yourself. Go talk to them. Jesus was raised. He showed himself to Peter and James. He showed himself to 500 others. There were women who saw him. And then he showed himself to me. Go talk to them. The first reporters at the tomb are women. Women, their evidence, their testimony in first century was not even admissible in court. If the disciples are making this story up, trying to perpetuate a hoax, they would not have chosen women to be the first discoverers. Because that's not trustworthy. Not trustworthy testimony. Unless that's how the story happened. And finally, the tomb was obviously empty and people were obviously making claims that they saw the resurrected Jesus. If one or the other isn't there, the movement dies. If people are saying, hey, we've seen him alive, cool, let's go check the tomb. If the tomb's not empty, well, you made it up. If they say, hey, the tomb's empty, but no one has claimed to see him, well, but in fact, they're both are there. It's startling, friends. The burden of proof is startling. And I love Pascal's quote. He goes, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Ruthless but true. All the first believers in this idea that Jesus was the Messiah were killed for it. None of them benefited. This story, just for anyone who's not a Christian in here, don't become one if you can help it. Because it's not going to help you. This story does not benefit us in this life. What we're being called into is a life of service, a life of forgiveness for those who don't deserve it. It is a hard life. And these first Jews, knowing what Jesus had taught, why would they willingly choose to enter into that and to die for it if it was a hoax? And yet the movement continued to spread. And boom, 
And more and more people said, I, I see him. More and more eyes were opened. All I'm saying is that when you start examining the world, when you start reflecting and seeking truth in it, seeking meaning, when you start hearing this gospel story, the story of the author God who writes himself into the narrative and doesn't come in power but comes in humility and who looks you in the face and goes, even though you're broken and deserve to die, I'm going to die for you. When you start examining this, our hearts burn within us. As they said, were our hearts not burning within us as he explained the story to us? It's, it's this idea of blessed longing. We not only feel the reality, but the absence of what we long for. We not only feel the reality, but we know that we don't have it yet. There's an absence. And then we hear Jesus' story and our hearts burn. And maybe we don't recognize him yet, but our hearts burn. And over time, we recognize that it completes our worldview. That it wasn't like we were completely wrong. We had right elements in it. It just completes it. See, the truth of the world per the gospel story, is that all roads are leading to Jesus' table and Jesus is already walking beside all people explaining what their hearts already know, telling his story, and hearts are burning within them when they hear the story of the God who comes and dies and resurrects. But they're still unconvinced. Still like, ah, I'm not sure. Which is why Hope Brooklyn, we're gonna be a place that teaches and worships and serves. We're gonna be a place that prays and parties and invites all into the feast. We're gonna have tables in the community that embody this gospel community, embody what love and sacrifice is. We're gonna do all that, but it still might not open eyes. And we come to his table because at the table we don't come face to face with the story, but with Jesus himself. Like I said earlier, it was really interesting. They invited him in to their table and very quickly it became his table. Be careful who you invite in. If you just give him a crack, he's knocking at the door. If you just give him a crack, he's gonna rush in and take it all. It'll be the best decision you ever made. And their souls, as he blessed the food and broke the bread, their burning hearts gave way to open eyes and they recognized him. They recognized his face and then he vanished. And the journey continued. And they ran at that hour, the Greek says at that hour, late at night, they ran back to Jerusalem, barged into their friends and said, you're not gonna believe this, it's true. What the heck does this mean? You know they were terrified. They're like, what does this mean? And something interesting too, when they said it's true, the Lord is resurrected and we saw him, they didn't call him Jesus. They called him Lord. That's what happens at the table. We recognize that he's not this historical figure. He's actually the Lord of the universe. We come to the table because it's here where burning hearts give way to open eyes, where faces are revealed both his and ours. And when we see ourselves, when our face is unmasked and his face is unmasked, we realize, 
I am actually far dirtier than I thought. I thought I had pretty decent life. I thought I was a decent person. The sickness goes deeper than I imagined. But his love goes even deeper still. Our eyes open to the reality of what his story is saying because the story seems too good to be true. How would a God create from love? Those he loves rebels, rejects him. And rather than be like, all right, fine, you're on your own. Enter into a story, a process of coming, of submitting himself to death for the sake of us, for the sake of love. At the table, we come face to face with Jesus and one another. I wanna end with a story. It's a story from someone in our community who gave me permission to tell it because it very much, it absolutely epitomizes why we come to the table. Um, So this guy had been a nominal Christian, he would say, throughout a lot of his life. He knew Christianity, but uh, his eyes didn't recognize Jesus, so to speak. He had a really, really tough year. Very tough year, both things that were done to him and self-destructive choices of his own. And it culminated one night this past summer and a long night of partying. He woke up Sunday morning and feeling just intense guilt, went to church. And at that time, Hope Brooklyn, we were still getting started, and so he went to Hope Midtown. And he shows up for church And he's like, put me to work. Tell me what to do. I'll do anything. Tell me to scrub the toilets. Tell me to clean the floors. I'll do whatever. He's just trying to atone. He's trying to get the guilt and the shame off him. And our very own Michelle Lee was actually the connections team lead at Hope Midtown. And so she goes, well, we actually have everyone We have everything taken care of, but we need someone to serve communion. And he he looks at her, no. (laughs) Absolutely not. She's like, well, that's that's all we have. He's like, you gotta be kidding me. If you knew what I knew, there's no way you'd want me up there. Well, at that time, a service goes on, and I was serving at Hope Midtown during the summer. And after the preaching and the invitation to communion, I guess I said something. I don't even remember this. I don't remember saying anything. But I said something along the lines of, the gospel is not what you do or don't do. The gospel is who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And when you realize that, you recognize that there's no distance you can run, that he will not come after you. There's absolutely nothing that his blood won't cover. And so he's sitting there thinking, well, shoot. Fine. So he comes up and he serves communion with me. And as he's telling me the story, he goes, "Um, I don't know if you know this, but he did cocaine the night prior. And he goes, the way coke works is that it lingers in your mouth for a while afterward. So he's standing up here holding the cup. And every time someone comes past, he says, the blood of Christ shed for you. And every time he says, the blood of Christ shed for you, cocaine drips the back of his throat. The blood of Christ shed for you and he tastes the cocaine. The blood of Christ shed for you, and he tastes the cocaine. The blood of Christ 
shed for you. And he goes, my eyes were opened. A God who knows everything about me, who when I show up says, ah, you can serve my grace today. The blood of Christ shed for you, knowing our real faces. Oh, I know your real face. This table is for you. And he goes, from that moment, my eyes were open. I was going deeper. I wanted to know who this Jesus was and how deep his love actually went. That's why we come to the table. Because at the table, we come face to face with the real Jesus. And friends, I know it's scary, but he's so good. Yes, he is. He's so good. Will you close your eyes with me?